What is up, good people? Welcome back to The Mourner's Bench, a podcast by Theolab Media. I am Brandon Thomas Maxwell. I'm KT Rex. KT! All right. Just realized my mic was muted. Oh. <laughs> I was like, damn, y'all, I said I'm Malcolm David like 30 seconds ago. Sorry. I'm Malcolm David. I'm Pastor Sam. On today's episode, we are wrapping up our reintroduction of the Mourner's Bench and returning to our conversation about God, faith, and why we are here. And that's not like in the existential sense. We basically mean this podcast. The conversation will include reflections on why there exists a need for God and how that need is most clearly displayed in our own lives. We will also revisit our conversation about the church and its relevance in the world today. So to get started, I want each of us to recap where we landed in last Thursday's episode. So very briefly, who is God to you? Who taught you that about God? And what is essential to your understanding of God and faith? That's the kind of the, what heel would you die on question or what's the cornerstone of your faith? Sam, what about you? Hmm. Seminary taught me who God was, but it was a reteaching or a relearning. There were many things, there were many people, there were many experiences that contributed to that learning of who God is. So seminary kind of put the cherry on on the top or it helped me to understand who God isn't as well as who God is. And as a result of that journey, God is transcendent and also imminent, whatever that means. But act like you've been to seminary. (laughs) (laughs) And what does it mean? God is. We ain't trying to go into all of that deepness and stuff, but I explain God is something completely other than anything that we can imagine, right? I can look out my window and see a squirrel crawling in the tree. There's nothing that has been created in this earth that I can compare or relate to God. God doesn't exist on this same existence as we do and as all of creation. And so God is transcendent. God is totally different and other, but God is also imminent. God is present in each and every one of us. And for me, that's the way that we know God is through each other. And the heel that I'm willing to die on is freedom, that liberty. I believe if if the gospel, if your religion, if the things that you value aren't making you free and others free, then there's a there's a huge problem with it. Malcolm? I don't remember what I said when we talked uh, just a few days ago, a week ago, whenever that was. And I think that that realization is actually kind of interesting just by itself, right? That I would answer the question in a lot of ways, uh, I know God in reference to what's happening around me in any given moment, in any particular moment. What are the interactions with other people that I've had today? What are the things that have brought me joy? What are the things that have challenged or disquieted me today? I encounter God in other people and in the world around me on a daily basis and in ways that continue to surprise me. I do know when we talked a week or so ago, I I mentioned my mom as being someone who really kind of taught me about God and certain communities that have formed me. But I think the, the way I would answer that question today is to say that I can only answer that question for today. And I might have a different answer tomorrow. It's hard to sometimes go back to what I said on Thursday or what you said on Thursday, because in many instances, I think our faiths are actually more dynamic than we would like to believe, even though some of us are schooled to think that 
God doesn't change and our faith should never change. I really think the majority of our faiths are dynamic in this way that they do ebb and flow as we go through life. Maybe not for everyone, but I think for many of us, that's the case. Katie, what about you? Well, I'm going to just discount everything you just said. Katie's like, God is always the same. God never changes. You are the best Baptist Presbyterian I've ever met in my life. But see, again, like... I think growing up and living through life, and maybe this is the 50 years of living thing, I don't know. For me, my understanding of God has shifted and changed drastically throughout life, but it is constant now. The constant for me about God is God's abundant and consistent presence. And so I am not always open to that, But every time I experience the absence of God, I realize that it was my lack of openness. Now, I say that clearly to say that there are people who say, God's always there and you just have to realize it. But I say this after going through really, really dark times. I know I couldn't encounter God. Now I know of God's presence. And unfortunately, I listened to you and that threw me off, Brandon. But what are you talking about? I was actually listening instead of thinking of what my answer was going to be, which is what you're supposed to do. Oh. <laughs> I was trying to engage the conversation. So I feel like my understanding of God has changed through the years as a child and, and growing up and even in ministry. I had a very cognitive faith. And I think that over time, struggles and just real times of needing to rely on God's presence, I came to a much more intimate understanding or knowledge of God. And I think you pushed that last time in the show when you said how I was using the word no. And when I use the word no, I think about a knowledge that is deeper than what I can think and deeper than what I feel. Like I can even feel myself when I'm in centering prayer, deepening into something that is at the very core of my being. And and that is the place that I encounter God, which is a very different from systematic theology or or something like that, but but is how I, I know God. In terms of who taught me I like to say that God taught me. Presbyterians don't talk about God talking to you in audible voices or showing up in very palpable ways. And so I listened to spiritual directors or heard stories of other people who had those encounters and tried to put words to what I was experiencing. But really it was just my faith or my belief in God has come out of desperation. I like the idea of desperation teachings you something. Yeah. Like out of a space of desperation, they're growing a need for you to tap into or grab onto other tools that your denomination or the church did not equip you with. Correct. Yeah. Desperation taught me God. That's interesting. I mean, I think for me, what I said last week is NDRE taught me God, <laughs> right? I mean, because to me, God is kind of the sum of these experiences and the world in which I live. It's earth, air, water, fire. It's the sun shining, it's the rainbow, it's the storm, it's the birds chirping, the intimate conversation with a friend, it's reconnecting with a family member from whom I'm estranged. I have a way of jokingly saying, mm, that's God, or mm, you missed God, whenever I'm talking to people sometimes. And what I'm trying to say is like, there's something about this moment that's so poignant and powerful that God is present for me. And when I talk about you missed God, people be like, what are you talking about? Oh, well, I'm trying to say that God was just in the room and you missed God. <laughs> 
Like God passed through and you were so busy with some other stuff that you didn't even know God was present. You missed God. So to me, God is a journey. God is a reliable other. I'm a big fan of something called process theology. Process theology suggests that um, God isn't this immovable, unshakable, unbreakable creature, but that God is intimately related to and connected with us here on earth and that there actually is a response from God. When humans do something, God actually does change. God does grow up. God does morph. I'm a big fan of process theology. And I think that the book of Job and the Judeo-Christian canon is one where I see God actually growing and changing, right? There's a demand placed on God. And I think about all the characters in the Bible who have tried God or kind of put a demand on God and God responds to that. So I, I think about God as being responsive and not being just like some holy other who is sitting down here, like starting a game and saying, everybody go, let's see how you fare. Hmm. Didn't do so well there, did you? Like, <laughs> that's not at all God to me. And I don't know who taught me that. It definitely wasn't my church. My church taught me that God was immovable. God was unshakable. God's unchangeable. And I think life taught me that. Reading Desmond Tutu, going to South Africa taught me that. Reading James Baldwin taught me that. Growing up Black in America taught me that. So for me, I think the thing that I stated last week that the heel on which I would die is this notion that there's beauty in diversity and that God's initial creative act and God's ongoing creativity in the world is diverse. It's always intended to spur diversity and make God known in wider ways, wider, not whiter. I will die on the hill that says God's creative act did not stop in Eden. God's creative act did not stop after the flood. God's creative actions did not stop with Jesus. God's creative actions did not stop at Pentecost, but that that creative energy is ongoing and it doesn't stop. It surprises us and catches us all off guard. And just at the moment that we think that we figured God out, boom, here's that creativity again to surprise us. So let's say that your core belief, your cornerstone, or the hill on which you're willing to die was proven to be untrue. What would that do for your belief in God? State it differently. Um, Let's say it was resolved. Let's say we got every single creature on the planet committed to the notion that God's creative action is ongoing in the world today. And what that produces is greater and greater diversity. And we have to figure out how we make space for God's creative action in our lives. Let's say that everybody committed to that and believed that. And that meant that trans folks are welcome, non-gender binary folks are welcome. All that's resolved. Would you still have a need for God? And or how would that change your relationship to God? It's harder to ask progressive liberals these questions, I think, because oftentimes when I'm doing this, I'm asking folks who completely disagree with me theologically. So it's sometimes simpler to say, what are you willing to die on? Marriage is between one man and one woman. Okay, what's at stake for you in that? And then they'll share that. And then what if that was proven to be untrue? Progressive liberal people with whom I'm in community, I think it's harder to ask these questions because at least again, for the folks to whom I am connected, our concepts and ideas about God are actually kind of more abstract and a little bit more broad and less rigid. But I still think it's helpful to ask, even if this sort of something that I would name as more abstract um, or less rigid, if that was resolved or proven to be untrue, how would that shift your relationship to and or need for God? That's an interesting way to ask it because I am one such person, even though my theology is far more orthodox or conservative or something. I don't have a need for others to hold on to that. So there's no hill that I'm going to die on. But I'm going to push you. There is a hill. Let's say that it's not a hill you're willing to die on. But I think one cornerstone of your faith just based off of our relationship would be, like you believe gay people are made in the image of God. You don't believe that they need to be converted. 
Right. Okay. So then the core belief that I have is that we are all created in the image of God, everyone, except that's cognitive belief. If you want me to engage that cognitive belief, then I will die on the hill. I mean, I will always die on a hill for justice and for people to um, be fed and people not to be killed on in the streets. I have that belief because I believe in a God who loves and is in intimate relationship with each and every one of us or can be. So that's my core belief. If what you're saying is once Jesus comes back, which would be once all things are made new, once all tears are wiped away. I love Katie. Once all tears are wiped away. Come on, Baptist preacher. Once all of that has happened, do I have a need for God? Maybe I have no idea what the hell the question you're asking is. Isn't that what you said? I absolutely love this. The beginning question is like, what's the hill on which you're going to die? And or what's the cornerstone of your faith? And then the way that I phrased the question was actually like, let's say that that's resolved and or it's proven to be untrue. What changes about God for you or your need for God? And you're like, I don't think about God that way. But then the language that you utilize, which isn't a problem, I think it's actually helpful, right? To say that all tears are wiped away, Jesus returns. There are a lot of assumptions embedded in that that's not good or bad, but I appreciate the way that you hear the question. And I mean, I think what this highlights is how hard communication about these things are because it's hard to discern what of what we're saying is something that's a deeply held belief And I think oftentimes the things that we hold deep and we hold to be true are difficult to name and it's difficult to figure out what is it that is really governing and guiding our lives. So the way that you framed it was really interesting because I'm like, oh my God, there's so much theology and there's so many assumptions embedded in that. What you're doing is I'm throwing out theological beliefs that may or may not be, those are not my core beliefs though. And you're taking them and saying that they are. What I'm telling you is that the core theological belief that, or the core, I don't, I don't talk in theological belief, my relationship with God, that intimate presence of God is the most important thing. The most important thing about God. So all things are made new. That's what I believe, but that's not a core belief. I still have a need for an intimate relationship with God. All trans people can be themselves. Black people aren't shot in the street. Everybody has food. Everybody has housing. Everybody has healthcare. All things are made new like that. Everyone is treated as if they're made in the image of God. I still need God because I need that relationship because that relationship is what helps me understand who I am. That's the most important part of it. I'm going to mute now and I'll be out. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like she's having an imaginary conversation with somebody that's not on this. Like just based on what Brandon was saying, I was like, is she talking to somebody else that we can't hear? But I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm really appreciating the conversation and I'm not certain what's frustrating about this for you, but I'm actually appreciating this. This is the exact conversation that I was hoping we could have. And maybe the question is just difficult to grapple with. And I can accept that if it is. What I was hearing as you were talking is there's a belief that God is relational. There's intimacy connected with God. And so like part of how I would ask the question after hearing you talk is like, so what if God wasn't relational? And what if God wasn't intimate? And what if God didn't give two craps about you as an individual in your relationship with God? How would that impact you. Interesting. 
If we were in a one-on-one conversation, then I would ask you what's at stake in asking the question. So I get it. I get that question if you're talking about gay marriage. I get that question if you're talking about white supremacy. I honestly don't think there's any purpose in living if I'm not in relationship with God. I can let go of all my theological beliefs. I don't care about any one of them. I could let go of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah of the world. But the intimate relationship with God, there's no point in living if that's not true. What is that? What does that look like for you? I have heard what I experience as referred to as mystical or like I I can go on walks and I am confident that that God's right beside me and has God's hand on my shoulder. Like I can feel that and I can sense the place where God walks away. Um, I can be in curled up in a ball because the world sucks and um, f- sense and know God's physical presence and calming, at times, calming voice. I can sit in silence in centering prayer and feel warmth just flow over me and a deep uh pressure in my chest. And I know that I have reached the depths of my soul where I can encounter God in person. I want to give you a breather because I don't want you to think that we're teaming up on you or I'm pushing you any way that I wouldn't push somebody else. I think, again, what I'm trying to highlight and what I think is beautiful about what just happened is if there was, I can't name your emotions for you, but if, because and also because I couldn't see you, but hearing how you're responding when I couldn't see you, I was like, this is actually the exact thing. Because I think no matter how thin or untheological, if you want to use that language, or unconscious or uncritical, and I'm, those, and I'm not using those way, things in a pejorative sense, no matter what your core beliefs are, if the core belief is simply that God's in a relationship with me and cares about me and cares about you, and then we ask the question, what if that's proven wrong? Or what if, depending on what the sort of claim is, that's resolved? I think that that actually does get to a pretty raw place and it gets to a pretty personal place because that's the deeply held belief. And I think in terms of trying to cultivate empathy with those who might ascribe other theological perspectives or opinions or or pile on other theological perspectives or opinions onto whatever their core beliefs are, I think that's what people are experiencing. I think when you say to conservative people, none of these things are true. Or when you say black lives matter and they don't get it, or you say that gay people are going to heaven or gay people can get married or gay people can be ordained. Like that sort of, I don't know what you're asking from me. That sort of, I don't know what's happening. What do you want from me? I think it's actually the sort of instinctual response that comes up because no matter how you name it and no matter how much we might think we don't care about these things, I think for each of us that chooses to live our life in relationship to a deity, no matter how you name it, it's a pretty challenging space to enter. I completely agree with you. And I think just to amplify that, I think that in addition, you and I have very different understandings of what it is that I think, and I have a very different understanding of what it is that you think that I think. And so um, that makes it even more complicated. I'm not putting anything on you. I'm just trying to understand. Like in this conversation, I'm listening to what you're saying and trying to- I'm not feeling upset. I'm just- I'm just saying that in order to, I mean, because I trust you, I'm fine. But I'm, what I'm saying is it's further complicated by the fact that your care, 
characterization, your characterization, your summary of what I believe doesn't match what I am feeling in my head and in my heart. So it just adds more complexity onto that. So that's all. So let's stay there then. Tell me more about, (laughs) just for a second, let's linger in the presence. I ain't feeling the presence of God right now. Go ahead. (laughs) Well, I was thinking more so like what I was trying to mirror back is a very pars down version of God's intimate relationship with me. And if God's not relational, then I don't have a need for it. That's what I was trying to mirror back to you. What about that doesn't reflect what you believe? No, I'm okay with you saying that. There were other things that you were saying when at the points at which I was getting frustrated. I do want to also articulate that, like, I believe in God's intimacy with everyone, not just with Katie Ricks in the world, so, or KT Ricks in the world. So that's important for me to note. Okay. Malcolm, what about you? There is this core belief I have that God is is working to make all things new and all people new and all circumstances and relationships new. And I do believe that in the end, God's justice, God's peace, God's grace, God's love will be the first and the last word in our personal lives and in the world. For me, that obviously has political and social implications. It has implications in my own heart and how I live in relation to the people around me every day. I believe that and I believe it in the midst of really not a lot of evidence in the world backing that up. And so when I say something like that, I feel the absurdity of it. But I really do believe that. I really do believe that God is working to make all things new. This is where the faith part comes into play for me again. I do think that God is the one who finally brings that to completion. I'm skeptical about how far we can get on our own, but I do believe that that's not an excuse to, to not engage in the work. If I like knew that was true, if, like if there was some sort of um, you know empirical evidence, if there was a way for me to demonstrate that that was happening, and my response is overwhelming joy. If it's not true, if it's proved to be a, a lie or a fool's errand or whatever, I don't really know. I, I don't really know how to move forward from that. That to me feels like the last chapter in the book. So I t- <clears throat> excuse me, 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 me. So I talked about uh, freedom or liberty, liberation, being free. Now you saying if that was somehow proved to be untrue. It's like the history of black people in the world. I think that's a broad term when we just say freedom or liberty, right? It's, it's, it's really positive freedom. It's not, you know, if, if what makes you feel free, Brandon, is that you are able to go and kill black people. That's not the type of freedom that I'm talking about, right? It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's this type of liberty or freedom that also contributes to positive freedom for other people. I think there's some nuances within the definition itself first, because some people might be like, well, what about folks who their desire for freedom means that they want to amass crazy amounts of wealth. And that happens by oppressing other people, or it happens, you know, in a number of different ways. I I think, I think it's, it's complex, number one, but without having that exact definition of the freedom that I'm talking about, if that were to be untrue, then God is a lie. If you tell me that it's untrue, 
that God's intention in this world is for people to have freedom and have liberty for self-determination to, to, to have their own happiness and joy in this world, then I, I, God is a lie or Christianity, this, this religion that taught me about God is a lie. Something is a lie. And I need to continue to pursue whatever it is that is the truth. I don't think anything will change for me. And I think this is where sort of my Christian humanist or humanist Christian leanings come in because so much of my faith and my life is about the intimacy that I have with other human beings and the relationships that I have with people and the ways that those things embody godliness, godness, nothing changes. In some ways, I think that I may be in the same place where you are, KT. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but nothing about what my commitments are change in the absence of God or nothing about my core beliefs change if God has proven to be otherwise. I would definitely stop using the name God or I would stop using God as in the Christian sort of framework for talking about these things. And in some ways I still think I already do that. So like I'm not piling onto God all these other things. I'm trying not to. But God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, the language of Christianity is something around which I can wrap my other commitments to humanity and to the flourishing of all human life. And the moment that freedom is everywhere, that black people are flourishing. Because if black people flourish, white people are going to flourish too because of the way the world works right now. Y'all ain't going to let black people flourish without making y'all selves flourish first. <laughs> if we flourish, then everybody going to flourish because that's how selfish y'all fuckers are. Then nothing changes. It's just that black people are flourishing and I might still use the language of God, Jesus, Holy Spirit to frame how and why we got there, or I might not. And so I think I want to wrap this section of the conversation, but before we break, let me say this. Through last Thursday's conversation and today's conversation, I think what I'm trying to highlight for people is that we are four folks committed to wrestling and having dialogue about these things. If you're listening to this podcast, it is likely the case that you're a person who really is probably Christian or Christian adjacent or at least interested in questions about faith and spirituality more broadly. It is also possible that you are a person who's been hurt by the church and or hurt by people who claim to love and value God. And I think oftentimes what we fail to realize is so much of our lives and this is part of my theological stuff coming into the equation, but so much, of our, so much of our lives are really determined by or defined by our relationships to other people. Our life experiences impact our relationship to an understanding of God. And so if ever and whenever we're talking about God, from my vantage point, it's very rare that we're saying the same thing. But all of our stuff comes into the room. And for whatever reason, Katie or I feel like, okay, I don't want to put all this stuff on God. There's a reason for that. I mean, if I was talking to a psychologist or a therapist, I might say that because I know how harmful it can be when someone places too much shit on God and then uses that God to do damage and harm, I am unwilling to do that myself because I know what it feels like to have that done to me. But for somebody else, who hasn't had that same experience, they might be willing to put other things on God. All of that is in the room. And God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Muhammad, Allah, Buddha, those terms don't do work for us. Those names don't do work for us. But the wrestling is where the work happens. 
And even here on this podcast, there's diversity in our perspective. I think we probably all voted the same way or similar ways. I know Sam thought he was going to vote for uh, Kelly Leffler, but um, there's diversity in our perspectives. And this is what we commit to walking in on a weekly basis is wrestling together. And y'all can't see Sam, but he is looking at me like an old Baptist church mother over his glasses. He ain't even got no glasses, but some glasses popped onto his face when I said he voted for Kelly Leffler. He didn't. But we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll discuss more about our experience of church and or organized religion very briefly, um, where we've been, where we are, and where we see ourselves going. And this will be an opportunity to speak in a more nuanced way about our relationships to the church. Some of y'all wrote in asking if we wanted to do away with the church and blow it up and, you know, take it away in its entirety. That was Sam blowing it up. (laughs) It very well may be the case that some of us do, i.e. Sam i.e. Katie. But we still want to revisit the conversation and the question to speak in broader terms and share more about exactly how we got to our current disposition or our current relationship to the church. All of that when we come back. I just wanted to note that you mentioned Buddha and Allah and Muhammad. (laughs) But I want you to know that Muhammad was a prophet. It's not God. I'm aware <laughs> of that. I know Muhammad ain't God. Okay. I just didn't. I just wanted you to know. I'm just saying Muhammad, Muhammad is real similar to Jesus. And some of y'all need to probably lean into that. <laughs> but Jesus said he was the son of God. So not God, but God's son. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Since the beginning of this podcast, each of us have shared extensively about our relationship to the church. We have shared highs and lows, pros and cons, beauty and hurt. For today's conversation, let's work hard, friends, to not recycle our same general talking points about the church. But let's try to take it a step further. A lot has happened since we started this podcast. Churches have started to open their doors again and worship in person. I'm seeing more and more live streams with people in the pews raising their holy hands, some of them unmasked. But things are changing and have changed a lot since we started this podcast. So where are you now as it relates to your understanding of need for or outlook on the life of the church? Malcolm, you want to get us started this time? Last Saturday afternoon, I was able to go for a a socially distanced masked walk through my neighborhood with a really old friend of mine, a person who I met through uh, the congregation that I am am a part of now. Uh, this was somebody who I'd, I just hadn't um, seen or connected with in a in a really long time, and just spending a few hours in conversation with that person was so life giving for me. And at the end of the conversation, we kind of started talking about the congregation, and it dawned on me as I was having this conversation with this person that I think both of us have been encouraged to adopt particular patterns and to live our lives in particular ways by the congregation that we're a part of. And I thought, man, I know an awful lot of people who if four years went by and I suddenly ran into you, I would have no idea how to pick up where we left off. I I wouldn't know how to trust that this person would hold the messiness of what I would want to share with them and would be willing to to do the same. And I think that the church, it, I was reminded 
that the church is a place that allows us to practice being fully human with one another. The truth is the church, I think far too often encourages the exact opposite. It tells you to, to you know, check all your shit at the door and you got to show up and, and look nice and say all the right words and, you know, make sure that, that you don't ruffle any feathers. But I do think the church at its best really helps us practice being fully human together. So for all of the struggles that I have for the church, I also do think that it helps us at times develop the muscle memory to, to practice what it means to be fully human together. I don't know that the church is the only place that, that, that does that work. Um, and I'm not sure that the church is even the best place where that happens. But I do think that it's one of the things that I still appreciate about communities of faith and people who gather together around a common set of convictions and a belief that the holy and the sacred resides in the person beside you. I've had a different, I won't say I've had a different experience. I think, I think the church has presented more challenges to people becoming more human than it has aided in that process. And a part of it is probably my own experience in the church, what the theological beliefs of the churches that I've had those experience experiences with are a number of things. Uh, I know, David, you and I have had different ecclesial journeys, if you will. Like we, we've, we've experienced church differently over the course of our lives. But for me, I feel like those experiences have constructed walls between people becoming more human or that prevented people from becoming more human. One of the challenges that I'm hoping to address in efforts and work that I believe I'm called to right now is to address some of those walls, to address some of those barriers that have been constructed that prevent the church from becoming more human. As humans, we speak kind of a human language, right? There is no other language we can speak. And so in order for us to actually receive this revelation of who or what God is, in order for us to be in any type of relationship with God, it's through speaking that human language. It's through connecting with each other on a very human level. And if we fail to do that, we fail to be in any relationship with God. There, There is no prayer. There is no temple. There is no church that you can go into and, and go deep enough in the spirit that you check in with God on some level, but you don't have human relationships. Unfortunately, it's been my experience that the church has been more destructive to that reality than helpful. As both of you were talking, one of the things that came up for me was there's a piece in the Atlantic. I think the piece was basically saying there's a whole, you know, category of sort of like moderate and or weak ties that we have to people. It's the people that we would see in the workplace, people that we would sit next to in the bar, the folks who we would go bowling with on a weekend, the folks who we wouldn't necessarily call close friends at this juncture, but just these folks with whom we have casual relationships typically organized around an activity. And I think the church also fits in this category where we make friendships or have relationships with people that are kind of moderate to weak relationships. We all speak this sort of Jesus language and we talk about our, you know, um, hopes and our fears and our gratitudes and our failures and our successes. And we all adopt this sort of language that's bathed in Jesus and this language about who God is that oftentimes obscures intimacy, the category of relationships that I have 
with church folks are oftentimes these sort of moderate to weak friendships. We sing in a choir together. We may go out to eat after choir rehearsal. We may go um, have breakfast between two services. We might even go to Sunday school together. And I would say probably Sunday school and or small groups are where more intimate connections oftentimes happen. But church as an enterprise, I think it's just like the bar. It's a place where we, where I have gone from moderate to weak relationships. But KT, what about you? This I have said before, but it will be nuanced. So I grew up cradle Presbyterian, served in Presbyterian churches. And I think for a very long time, I kind of connected this governance and um, theology and worship all all were similar, right? That there was some kind of connection. I am deeply Presbyterian theologically. I am deeply Presbyterian when it comes to governance or polity, which is a seminary term. But it is the worship that where I am lost now. This is not lost. I just don't fit into the worship that I grew up in. And I think you said something to me a couple of weeks back, Brandon, and it's been weighing on me. And the reality is that I can worship. There, I thought that I could not encounter, like if worship is this communal gathering of praise and encounter with the living God, I do not experience that in the Presbyterian church. Where I do experience it is when the people leading worship are Black Baptists, Black Pentecostals, and non-denominational folks who happen to also be Black. If worship is a cultural experience, that is outside of my culture, that is outside of my theology and governance, and so, quite frankly, I don't know what to do with the church. That's what you challenged me on because I kept saying church and you said, I think you're talking about the Presbyterian church. And I said, yes. Um, And so I don't know. I don't know what my relationship with the church is because period. Sound like you just want to throw some black people in. You got a fetish for black folks. Right. See, that's why and that is the problem with saying this in with an unfiltered group of anyone in the world can gather that. So you all can hear that and know the depth of where it comes from. And I'm like, Katie just wants black people to lead worship. We just gonna get you some black people. That's what we gonna do. Right. If I could just go to a black church and everything will be fine. Yeah, that's so right. I'm being honest and I mean but I don't hear you saying that you want so like there are some churches who you know figure out that black people are more spirited in some ways than their church and they sprinkle black people in let's have a black Sunday once a month or let's have uh, black people lead worship and we'll we won't change anything else about the structure of our worship but we'll just have black people leading it and I don't hear you saying that but what I do hear you saying just because I know you is like, no, you've experienced something that is real and that is authentic and that is true inside of worship spaces where black people actually have been in leadership and leading in a way that's authentic to our particular expression of faith and or culture in the space. And you appreciate that. 
Yes. And I don't hear you saying that you want that in the PCUSA. I've experienced it in the PCUSA, not in the same, not in as holy of a way. I was going to say, you haven't experienced that in the PCUSA, honey. <laughs> I've experienced black people being scattered throughout worship and not. That part. So I think that I have been in an extended period of like wandering in the wilderness and or in the desert as it relates to church. I haven't attended a church regularly, like physically gone to a church regularly in at least two years. And that's felt so liberating and that has felt so good. And I still can't break the habit, even before the pandemic, of logging in to see what's happening on live streams. I still can't break the habit of talking to somebody about what I saw on a live stream. I text with my family, my friends, old colleagues, pastor colleagues regularly about what's happening in their churches and give feedback, right? I mean, I'm like, hey, maybe if you try to do this, that would help you achieve your goal and or what is your goal? Do you have a goal? Um, (laughs) And so like there's still this sort of connection to churches that I have, even though there's a physical distance and I think a desire to maintain that distance in this season of my life. I would stand by some of my previous statements that for whatever is holy and whatever is good and whatever is right and whatever is sacred, I don't think it's happening inside of 97% of the churches in the country. Not even in a virtual format. Definitely not in a virtual format. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is there is still a part of me that wants the church to go away, at least in its current iteration. I remember studying abroad for a year I was in Germany and traveled all across Europe when I was there. And what I kept hearing is, you know, there are all these beautiful churches. And this came from people in my context. There are all these beautiful churches and nobody goes to them. They're just tourist attractions. And I think initially I went in with that same perspective because that's what I had heard so much of. And there was almost this fear that we can't let that happen in the United States. We can't have all of our churches be empty and ultimately just become tourist attractions. And I'm like, ma'am, sir, non-gender binary human, that's not going to happen here because your churches are ugly. But (laughs) (laughs) um, the longer that I stayed and the more that I visited all these churches, I was like, there actually is something beautiful and I guess sacred for me about an empty building where I believe an architect attempted to say something about God with the physical space. There was no music. There was no preaching. There was no Eucharist. But just an empty building dedicated to the worship of God. And sometimes it was sitting in those spaces in silence that gave me the most nourishment. And that's where I am with the church. I'm like, what would it look like for it to be empty? I mean, right now it is empty, but we're still, you know, having the selects chosen and the few go in there to record service on Sunday mornings. I don't need it to blow up, but I do want it to burn. And from the ashes, I believe, I hope that something beautiful will arise. How do we get to that which is authentic, that which is honest, that which is hard? and can't be summed up with easy Sunday school answers with a neat little bow. I think we'll only know if it burns. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back.
All right, friends, that time has come and the hour is nigh. We've come once again to the end of an episode and you know what that means. We've got to go back to the altar and we got to tarry for the Holy Ghost. But it is time for some of y'all to sit your ass on the bench. You've been acting crazy and reckless far too long and we have seen the power of this bitch on this podcast. I also am aware that some of y'all think I am saying bitch. I was going to say, you really, <laughs> that was the first time I heard it. <laughs> I gotta start pronouncing that in. Bench. <laughs> the mourner's bench. We've seen the power of this bench on the podcast. There have been some of you who've been sat on the bench and you've gotten up three weeks later, three days later, just like Lazarus. Lazarus was four days. Jesus was three days. I don't give a fuck how many days it was. <laughs> <laughs> who's on the bench? I don't know who's on the bench, but I, I bet what we're hearing is just the rats in the walls where Sam lives. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you say that? <laughs> what else is tapping on the walls? <laughs> oh, sorry. You are the worst. <laughs> wow. Who is on the bench? Um, whoever created the stopstacy.org website in order to stop Stacy Abrams from taking over the state of Georgia in 2022 in the eventual governor's race and flipping things across the country like there's a mounted campaign to stop Stacey. Oh, you teaching me something. There was a report from the FBI a um, few years before King was assassinated that listed that named him as the most dangerous Negro in America. Well, I think Stacey Abrams has that moniker now. Wow. But I'm putting all of them white, I'm putting all of those people on the bench. I mean, why would you think that there, there, there may be black people who've done this, but this is horrible. I'm actually mad about it. You done taught me about this. You, you, you have to warn me before you do this. <laughs> you cannot come to a podcast episode and tell me that there is an entire campaign against my future governor, the Stacey Laylene Abrams. I don't know, Yvonne. We said it was Yvonne. Stacey Laylene Abrams. You cannot do that in the middle of an episode recording and expect me to rebound, rebound from that. <laughs> It's an ugly website. It's basic. It's one page. You see, it's not even a website. It's a web page. <laughs> Let me sign up. I'm about to sign up because <laughs> I want to see what they got to say. <laughs> I was going to let Jordan sign up because I just don't have any patience for that, but she can handle those. I want to I want to see what they texting. I want to invite to the signal thread. I want to invite to the Telegram page. I want all of that. I want to see what they saying, how they saying it, when they saying it. I need to go make a fake email address. <laughs> Somebody please change the subject. I just got mad. Who did this? Who? What's my zip code? You don't need that information. They said she's the leader of the radical left, the founder of a shady voter registration network, champion of socialist anti-American agenda. Do y'all want... Who did this? <laughs> this is that damn cue, Anon, if I have ever seen it. Sam, warn me next time. Don't do this to me in the middle of a recording. I'm mad. 
stop the new de- democratic swamp. I got your swamp. Who's on the bench, KT? Well, I'm going to put on the bench the DeKalb County School District, the superintendent, uh, Mrs. Cheryl Watson-Harris. They got a video. It's a 15-second video. Stop higher taxes. That's Donald Trump. Stop government health care takeover. Stop the assault on the election. Stop the radical left. Brandon, let Katie... No. <laughs> Brandon, <laughs> I'm sorry. How are you going to make a 15-second shady-ass video and put it in the middle of a web page? I'm about to join. Let me go make my Gmail because I'm about to see what they're talking about. Who's on the bench? Do not interrupt Katie again. I'm getting off the site. I'm closing it right now. I, I closed the window. I'm, I'm, I'm done. All right. I'm going to put on the DeKalb County School District, the superintendent, Mrs. Cheryl Watson-Harris, and the school board of DeKalb County. They are sending teachers and administrators and staff back into the schools on Wednesday. She had to um, pause it for a few weeks just because um, the numbers were so high. The numbers are still high. If I look up my New York Times, it says DeKalb County is an extremely high-risk area for COVID, but the teachers don't have an opportunity to teach from home. They are required to be back in the building or they have to take leave or they have to leave their jobs. I don't know. It's bad. And I realize that there are people who need for their children to be in school. I get that. But what I wish there were some creativity around were supporting the teachers and the administrators and the folks that are working their butts off in the schools. There are people dying in school districts around Atlanta and yet who work there, and yet we're still going to send our teachers and ultimately our students back into school. There's got to be a better way. I'm literally reading an article that says 19 cases of the highly contagious COVID-19 variant identified in Metro Atlanta. And it names DeKalb as one of the places where this new highly contagious variant has been found. And so in light of all of this, like they're still making these decisions. I'm betwixt and between because there is a part of me that feels like whoever made this ugly ass website is somebody sitting home and not going to work every day. It's a teacher. It's a teacher in a red district and they need to go back to work. (laughs) If it's a teacher who did this, we don't know who you are. We don't know who you are. But if it is a teacher that did this, you going back, you going back to your job, but everybody else can stay home. Well, then that, I think you're trying to send them back so they can get COVID, but if nobody else is there... I want that person to go back, and I want every child who has a running nose to go back. Well, running nose ain't a symptom of COVID. (laughs) (laughs) You're horrible, because this is serious. I'm serious. Have you seen this webpage? Shit. I know, actually. You're right. I can can tell you're serious. But I... I'm, I have real, real concerns. I'm concerned too. I don't want anybody to go back to working in person, especially not right now when vaccinations are not being rolled out in an effective manner. Just to be serious for one second, they have to be on the bench for that decision. And I think similar to other states who've tried this approach, what we'll see is infection rates happening at a pretty rapid pace. And we'll have to 
reverse course. My only hope and prayer is that we don't have to lose lives in order for it to get to that point. If you're listening to this and you have access to vaccines, get the vaccine. Yeah. Get the vaccine. It's just like my mother said. You will go to the doctor and you will get a Viagra or a Cialis pill and not ask two questions about it and the chemistry of it and what it does to your body. And you're going to ask some questions about a vaccine. Take your ass to the vaccination site and get a vaccine. And if you are in a decision-making seat in any capacity at your job, in the local government, in your church, stop letting people make foolish decisions. Speak up. Exactly. So actually, let's put everybody on the bench who sits in rooms where people are making decisions that that, that are harmful. Who are silent. And what's crazy, Brandon, is 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 not even we don't even have to talk about Viagra. Like most folks whose kids go to a public school or attended a public university had to get immunizations. They had to have certain shots. They had to have certain things yes. before they could enroll, before they could start classes. Yep. And they go and they get those things and they make sure yes. that their children's records are up to date because they understand the importance, if not the importance of immunization, the importance of their children participating in whatever they're trying to enroll them and so this is no different and in the middle of a pandemic this is more urgent more pressing and more important and it's more safe if you take your child to get a flu shot every year you are injecting a small portion of the flu inside of your system so that your body can fight it off exactly with let's talk about the research let's talk about the science because people are stupid i'm putting on the bench any black person who said hank aaron got the COVID 19 vaccine and then he died no that's not what the fuck happened because that's not possible he was a thousand years old (laughs) he was katie's age (laughs) i hate you i hate you And science. (laughs) So just so you know, with this particular vaccination, what actually is happening is they are putting a spiked protein in your system so that your body can understand, can develop the antibodies to fight off other spiked elements that the the, the COVID-19 virus that might come into your system. So you aren't even getting COVID-19 injected into your system. It is a spiked protein so that your body can learn how to fight it off. After your first shot with the Moderna and the with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, you are about 50% more effective at fighting off the COVID-19 virus. After your second shot with the Moderna vaccine, you're about 94.1% effective of fighting off the first strand of COVID-19 and 95% with Pfizer. It is a spiked protein. It is not COVID-19. If you if this is the first time that you are hearing this, please go to Google and stop saying that you can get COVID-19 from getting this vaccination. And Hank Aaron did not die from the vaccination. Cicely Tyson, I don't even think she was vaccinated. She didn't die from this. But how they picking people that's almost 100 years old to make this case? They the People die. Like, it happens, and it especially happens when you're 96. Like, she lived a good life. I'm, 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 she did, and I wanted her to be like Methuselah. I wanted her to live forever. I did think about putting the Green Reaper on the bench again because there were lots of people who died this week that shouldn't have died. No, they should have. This is the thing. <laughs> they shouldn't have died because of some crazy reason. I'm about to put your ass on the bench. No, no, no. This is what I'm saying. Like, like, okay, Chadwick. Okay, wow, Chadwick. He died 40-something years old. Like, when we buried my grandma at 94, like, it was it was a sad moment. But nigga, how many people don't live to be 94? Like, seriously. So so when I hear you say they shouldn't have died, I'm like, well, if they shouldn't, shit, who should? 
You know, 96. I think it's compounded grief. I think that the reality is we are all wrestling with the fact that there are a lot of folks like Chadwick who didn't have to die. There are folks who were 65, who were 70, who could very well have made it to 80 and 90, who are dying. So I think it's this notion that we are, I think we are as a society right now have a lot of compounded grief that we have not processed. And because our churches on Sunday mornings are more interested in shouting us via the live stream, as opposed to pastoring us, we aren't processing that grief. And so when Cicely Tyson dies, I think in any other situation outside of COVID-19, people wouldn't be like, she shouldn't have died. Gone too soon. You're right. Bullshit. She was 96. Gone too soon. Because, <laughs> because my cousin might have passed away or my uncle might have passed away or these other humans who should have lived longer lives passed away. It feels like everybody is being taken away. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is on a beach in Florida. Who else is on the bench? Mine is not like near as serious as y'all's is. I was going to put the chair that I sit on every day on the bench. I don't know if I can put like one sitting surface on top of another sitting surface, but put it on the bench. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I, so last week, my right shoulder started hurting. Like, like really, like I couldn't sleep at night. I mean, like hurting. My neck's been hurting. Y'all, all I do is sit all day. I literally injured myself from sitting. I don't know. Maybe it's just me like coming in terms with my mortality. You know, I'm not as young as I used to be. But like I literally all all I have done for like the last 10 months is sit and like occasionally go for a walk or like get on my bike for an hour, you know, and I like a rickety ass old wooden chair has caused me like a significant amount of pain. And that is instead of me blaming my own body and lack of exercise, I'm going to choose to blame the chair. So I'm going to put my chair on the bench. See, this is, I, I'm remembering our body positivity episode. And so I'm going to try to toe a careful line, Natalie. I'm putting your genetics on the bench and I'm putting Katie's genetics on the bench. I've been saying for years that white people ain't got no booties. That y'all be sitting down and y'all sit on a back with a crack. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like if white people grew booties, <laughs> whatever happened in y'all's genetic strand that made y'all's backs have cracks, that needs to go on the bench because it, it does not make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> so y'all be walking around here looking like a back with some legs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you are enjoying what you're hearing, take a moment to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, Take a moment to leave both a review and rating to help other listeners who are just getting to know the Mourner's Bench. And if you'd like to connect with the Mourner's Bench cast more directly, email what's up at theolabmedia.com or follow us on social media. The handle's at theolabmedia on all channels. We'll see y'all next week. Peace. make no sense David Malcolm that don't make nobody sense you sitting on a hard wooden chair you need to grow a booty you need to figure you need to put some pillows in your pants <laughs> <laughs>